For our second message today, we have a sermon uh, from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Jesus and the Jubilee. Mr. Steele. Good afternoon, everyone. And hello to everybody that's uh, tuning in. Hopefully, uh, everybody's uh, able to connect. And we have a new upgraded internet service. So, uh, Rick got us uh, some faster speeds. Uh, so, hopefully, those of you out there uh, on online can uh, connect with a better, better signal. You know, um, I probably should have worked this out because math is hard for me. But there's many years now that I've been uh, keeping the holy days. And I know that you guys have me beat. There's plenty of you in this room that have me beat by probably decades. I was uh, raised a Baptist. So um, I guess I'm still a recovering Baptist. Ken and Glenda can uh, associate with me there. Um, but, you know, with each passing year, the holy days get more rich, don't they? Uh, there's so much to learn in the holy days. And, I think sometimes we, you know, we, we have in our mind that we've structured and organized the holy days, and this means that, and that means this, and we've got it all nicely defined, and, and we do have many things defined. Uh, but maybe, maybe they're not quite so wrapped up in a, in a tidy little bow than, than we think. You know, we begin the year with Passover, don't we? the days of unleavened bread. Then the 50-day count to the celebration that is culminating in Pentecost. And then we have the summer, right? Where we kind of have this nothingness, this, this blank ocean um, that there is no holy days in the middle. But of course, you know, that, that makes sense, right? Because of how the holy days are built around the, the spring and the fall harvests and and so that makes sense to us. But then, we do come into the time that we're coming into right now. Festival of Trumpets, Atonement, and then the big one we all look forward to. Feast of Tabernacles. And then the last great day. And many of us would say, that I think would agree with me, that, that as we keep these days, as we study these days in their season, that we, we gain more insight and more richness into this way and into the, plan, the, the salvation plan that God has. But, you know, have you ever come across people that will just cannot understand that you're not trying to earn salvation? Have you ever come across those folks? Now. And, you know, I remember when I was leaving the Baptist church, I was a teenager, maybe 19, 18, 19, I can't remember exactly. And uh, the, the pastor of the church wanted to have the deacons interview me. Kind of like an exit interview. I don't know, it was a little strange. But I was happy to share what I was going to do. And they thought that I was going to be trying to earn salvation course, I stumped them a little bit. I said, well, hey, you guys believe once saved, always saved, so what does it matter? 
right? Oh, uh, but that's a common thing, certainly, that I've come across. And then I'm seeing lots of heads nodding that well, we're trying to work our salvation. We're trying to be perfect, live perfectly, follow all the God's laws, and, and so on. And that includes, unfortunately, in lots of people's minds, the holy days. And so, therefore, we're trying to earn our salvation. But we know the irony, don't we? We know the irony of observing the holy days, observing the Sabbath. It is the reverse. It is actually a constant reminder to us that it is impossible to earn and work our way to salvation. What much of Christianity does not seem to understand, that it is by the observance of these days we come to understand much deeper, much, much deeper, how these days reflect the character, the nature, the plan, the person of Jesus Christ. And it's only through him that we are saved. Not through the keeping of a given day. And, and you know, we, we, we do recognize that we have people in our tradition that miss this point also. Oh, uh, well, if we just adjust for this process or that process, and if we get it just right, then God will bless us. And oftentimes that's nothing more than a Church of God prosperity doctrine, is it? Our own flavor of that. But an open, an honest look at the holy days tells us that we cannot save ourselves. And every attribute that we observe reminds us. Central to every holy day is Jesus Christ. His role, his sacrifice, his salvation that he has given to us freely. Christ Jesus is our Passover. He is the unleavened bread from heaven, isn't he? He is that manna from heaven that we are to incorporate into our lives. He is the first of the first fruits written or risen from the dead, never to die again. And he's brought us to himself. And how did he do that? Through the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then he is the conquering king that's soon coming back to this earth that is signaled with those trumpet blasts that we are getting ready to celebrate. And we look forward to. It is a it's a memorial, a remembrance of how God has intervened in, in world history. And it is looking forward to the time when he shakes the whole earth with those trumpet blasts. And then, of course, we have in the fall, as we have in the spring, a reminder that it is only through the atonement, isn't it? The atonement of Jesus Christ that we are made clean. It's only by him that our sins are taken away. This is central to the holy day. There is no earning of salvation here. He is our high priest. He is our sacrifice of redemption and reconciliation. Christ Jesus, our Passover and our atonement. And once he has accomplished all of this, once for all, and he's reconciled, the whole world to himself, then what does he do? 
He plants a kingdom on this earth, a feast of tabernacles on this earth that will never be removed. It will never pass away. And then as we look towards that last great day, and the, lots of the symbolism that we have there, and there's, there's certainly many questions about what is beyond that and, and, and what's the fullest manifestation of that, but what we do know is that there is a t place and time when he hands that kingdom, that kingdom that has covered the whole earth, and he hands that back to his father. Such rich understanding. And we're blessed to have these holy days. We learn these things, and we live these things by observing these sacred assemblies. And of course, I've touched just the surface, haven't I? There's so many other things within the holy days that can help us, encourage us. But every understanding that we have from these days underscores the single point that I made at the beginning, is that we cannot bring this about by observing them or by doing anything of ourselves. Christ is our salvation. It's funny, I remember thinking that, you know, there's a very strong tradition, isn't there, in the, certainly the, uh, uh, you know, larger Sunday Protestant community that, that if they, they can just get that third temple built in Jerusalem, or they can just get the whole world to recognize Jesus and, and make a restoration, then God will return. Like, have you not read the back of the book? That's not how it happened. And so if anybody's trying to work and earn salvation, <laughs> it might be our friends in the Sunday tradition. The holy days tell us that it is God's plan, that he is working his plan, and that he will establish his kingdom in his time. We know all of this by and through the memorialization of the holy days. That by observing these days, we stand back and see the salvation of our God. So when we keep the Sabbath and the biblical holy days, it's not because we're trying to earn our salvation. We are, in fact, doing the opposite. We're remembering that we cannot earn our salvation. The strongest example of this, to me, is the Day of Atonement. Right, the Day of Atonement. The high priest does everything, pretty much. There's a couple of other players. But even those players, even those individuals, represent aspects of Jesus Christ. And then embedded within atonement is probably my favorite part of that day and, and what this holy day symbolizes very special process. I've talked about it before. We've, we've studied this before. It happens every 50 years. We have the day of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. As I said, this is one of my favorite parts of the holy days. There is so much rich 
gospel salvation in that process, in this jubilee. And I think that each one of us really can focus on this and just appreciate the incredible blessing that this, this jubilee represents. And I, I looked this up. I was trying to find, I remember years ago, trying to do the math and figure out when, when the last jubilee was and when the next jubilee was. Some people said, oh, the last jubilee was 2015, but we missed it. I could have gotten rid of my mortgage and everything. And then others are saying, well, it's actually in, uh, what, it'd be about six years. 2026. I don't know, my mortgage might be paid off by then. This is not working out well for me. It would be nice to know. But there's certainly not a consensus on the, the actual uh, next Jubilee. But what we do know about Jubilee and the instructions for it, we find in Le- Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 8. It says, and you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. And then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet sound throughout all of your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all your land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. Wouldn't this be awesome? This would be fantastic, wouldn't it? If we could follow this as a community. Every 50 years, all the lands return to the original family Maybe it wouldn't be good for us. It might be good for Lucille. She'd get all her land back, right? And Barnabas. And that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because, you know, Israel took the land when they went into Canaan. They took the land from, from the original inhabitants. But it's based on what God decides. It's based on his judgment. And of course, as we know from the division of the tribes when they entered the land, it was based on the parcels of land that each tribe was given. So, I don't know if we could make it work here. It would certainly be nice. But that every 50 years, all lands return to the original family owners. To think about what else that would do things that we have problems with today. No massive 
corporate form. How about that? Because the longest they could hold on to it would be about 49 years. And you couldn't have this massive buildup of wealth and landowners, could you? Where the very successful take it away from the less successful, and then there's never a redress, never a balance. You know, and it's interesting that man tries to come up with ideas to solve these problems, because there are problems in, in different cultures and communities around the world, and they end up saying, okay, now the land belongs to everybody. And that's called socialism. And that doesn't work. But this works. Because it, it protects the poor. And it protects families from being generationally poor. And gives them a reboot, a restart. If they can get their land back, and they can learn from the lessons of the past, and maybe farm that land in a more effective way, and perhaps maybe not make mistakes. The land, the earth itself, from which we gain all our food, all of our resources. You know, you may have some land that is really uh, embedded with silver and gold or precious, other precious jewels, metals, and so on. There's so many things that we can yield from land. Iron to make implements and tools. All of that is rebalanced, readjusted, in the Jubilee. So no land barons, as I said. No massive corporate farms. This process serves as a limiter. So the super rich probably wouldn't happen. And it would help the poor. So what part of this what part of this process was earned by the people? What part of this jubilee process was earned by the people? None of it, right? So by keeping jubilee, by keeping atonement, and remembering jubilee on atonement, there is no earning of anything. It's freely given. The land is freely returned. Prisoners are set free. Servants are released and set free. And I don't know if you noticed the language there. You shall return to your family. It's a restoration of family that have maybe been broken up because of economic conditions. And somebody had to sell themselves into ser servitude. Not exactly like slavery, but they were not free to go and do whatever they wanted to do. So all of this came at no price. It was just happening. It was the blessing from God by his law. The day comes from the word of God. The trumpet blast of atonement is heard in the land. And everyone that is an indentured servant paying off debts walks what would that feel like? Just this weight taken off them, and they can be free. They didn't do anything to make it happen. 
And you know, it just raised some questions. You know, what if something really terrible were to happen to a given family line? Would what happens then to the land? If you would return to the next of kin, or a judgment would be made. But nonetheless, if there is a survivor, land returns to them, and they themselves are set free. So, what's the overwhelming message that we get from Jubilee? That it is a free gift, that it is God's commandment to follow it, that by following that, we are given this freedom and liberty to start again. But then there's more. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 39, it says, And if one of your brethren who dwells uh, by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, as a hired servant and a sojourner. He shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children, and shall return to his own family. He shall return the possessions of his fathers, for they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold to slaves. You shall not rule over them with vigor, but you shall fear your God. Challenges come on us in life, don't they? Sometimes they are economic. We make maybe some poor financial decisions, get ourselves into some debt. We can get hit with, you know, damage to our homes from storms, and we have to borrow to, to repair where we live. Or we can get sick and become unable to work. And medical care can just <coughs> eat up all of our savings. There's so many different things that can happen to us in life that bring us to this place where we are poor, and we are in debt. And we're in crisis. And maybe some of us have been in some similar situations. Might know how that feels. And the, the fear and the oppression of knowing. You know, the, 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 I've, I've heard people talking about the, the collection calls from the credit card company. And just the constant badgering and the fear and, and, and the anxiety that can raise in a person's life. We can all experience that. You know, there was a period of time in our Western world, in our history, that we thought it was a really good idea to lock people up when that happened to us. You've heard of those, right? Dead as prisons. Well, there's a smart idea. So you owe a bunch of money to somebody, and you can't pay it back, so they'll get you put in prison, where you can't earn any money to pay it back. And you're charged for your accommodation. That was debtor's prison. One of man's very genius ideas on how to solve financial problems. More often than not, you literally were there just as kind of I don't know, equity, to force your family or your friends to bail you out and pay off the debt, along with your accommodation fees 
which <laughs> the accommodation was pretty much a dungeon filled with every kind of disease possible. And debtors' prisons in the United States, I think, were still around until something like 18, 1833. Man's answer to debt crisis. And when we get into difficulties. Today, we don't end up in prison, right? We do have some tools available to us. But it might feel like a prison, as I said, with those debt collectors making the calls, with the things in the mail demanding payment. And sometimes, in fact, more often than not, by no fault of the individual. The number one cause of bankruptcies in the United States is for medical bills. Two-thirds of all bankruptcies, actually, are for medical bills. But you, uh, you get successful, you get your bankruptcy process, and the judge says, yep, you're good to go. All your debts are wiped out. That must feel good. And you're financially ruined for a long time. Right? Because in our society, oh, we need to have a credit score in order to do pretty much anything. And so we are limited still. It's not a jubilee. It doesn't even come close to a jubilee. A man or a woman in Israel who found themselves in a debt crisis could pay off their debt by work. They could become a servant for that period of time for the value of that debt. And then they would be set free or set free in the jubilee. And they could walk out, walk back to their family and to their lands and be completely free. That is what freedom must have felt like. Not our version of it. Not our bankruptcy courts. This is real freedom. But even still, as awesome as a system like this would be and as amazing as it must have felt for the people that actually enjoyed this, and I guessing, but I don't think there was many that enjoyed this, given how rapidly Israel fell into idolatry and, and anti-God practices. But as good as this sounds, it's just a shadow, isn't it, of what the Jubilee is really all about. I know we've studied this many times before, but I really feel like in the same way that we approach Passover, we should start to approach atonement. And Jubilee is part of atonement. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, being praised by all. So he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. I'm always curious about that. 
Did he ask for it? Because it doesn't say, does it? Did he ask for it? Rabbi, uh, which book would you like to read? I need Isaiah, please. Or was he like, oh, cool. I know what I'm going to do now. Either way, I think he was guided by the Spirit by what happened. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. All the eyes of and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But you could just hear a pin drop for that moment. Do you believe him? Do you believe what Jesus was saying? might sound like an odd question. We're all sitting here with our Bibles and we're kind of uh, saying that we're a Christian. But do we really believe it in our heart of hearts? Deep down in our very core. Do we believe it that he was saying this to us? that he was declaring the year of the Lord. He was quoting Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all the more. Do we believe Jesus when he says this about us, about you and I, that he was anointed to preach the good news to you and me, to the poor? The same poor that he said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The same word. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do we believe that? Have we accepted that? And what is? What is being poor in spirit? It's not being financially poor, is it? It's, it's being humble. It's being broken. It's being impoverished in our spirit. Because this is a message of liberation of those that are in captivity. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, I've come to preach the good tidings to the poor. And what are the good tidings? The good news. The good news of his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Jubilee is coming. Do we believe him when he said that he has come to heal the brokenhearted? Oh, I'm not brokenhearted. That's those other people out there. That's those sinners. I've been in the church for 30 years and I'm not brokenhearted. I'm all fixed. Not really. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we're brokenhearted, we mourn, don't we? We long for comfort. When we're broken, we long for comfort. Do we believe him when he said that he's going to open the prison to those that are bound? Bound in our situations in life, bound in our addictions, bound in in where we find our relationships, bound in all kinds of different ways. Do we believe him? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do we believe it? That when he sets us free, that he will give us that inheritance. That we will inherit this earth. You know, I don't think of it that way very often because I I tend to think this world is not my home and I want to go to the kingdom of God, right? And, And we understand that. But he is going to give us this earth as our home. This strange disconnect. It doesn't feel like our home sometimes, but it will be our home. It will be our home. Do we believe it? Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Do we believe Jesus when he says that he is here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord? If you look closely at your Bibles, for those of you who have your Bibles, electronic or otherwise, see a little mark next to that passage in Isaiah. And it cross-references all the way back to Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 9. This is Jubilee. The acceptable year of the Lord is the Jubilee year. Jesus was there in the synagogue telling them, I have just brought the Jubilee to you. And I don't know if it was a Jubilee year or not. But it was. Because he said it was. The acceptable year of the Lord. Remember, he said, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. He made it that year of Jubilee. Do you believe that he has done these things to you? Do I believe that he has done these things for me? That he is the fullest manifestation of the Jubilee. Christ has made us free. He's made us free. I'm asking you to think about this because... There's a curious phrase back in Leviticus 25, 13 to 17. 
In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase the price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish the price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And so this process here was designed, right, for, to hold people accountable and to not overcharge. I'm selling you my land and there's only 15 years to the Jubilee, so that's the value of it. But the key phrase for us in Christ is that we need to not oppress one another. That's what that's ultimately about, is do not take advantage of one another. Do not oppress one another. Do not oppress yourself. This is the year of Jubilee. Jesus has brought to us a Jubilee. We need to go free in the Jubilee. What would happen if somebody hears the trumpet blast? Okay, it's, it's atonement. Oh, it's the year of Jubilee. And they stay right where they are. And they continue being the servant for somebody else. And they don't go and pick up their land again. They don't go back to their land and back to their family and receive their inheritance. What would happen if they didn't do all of that? They wouldn't be free. There's something we have to do. We have to actually participate in it. We have to accept how Christ has made us free. So do we oppress ourselves? Is there a part of the field of our hearts that we're not letting go in the Jubilee? Are there emotional wounds that we are not letting go in the Jubilee? Are the debts of bitterness and hurt and anger at life, at other situations, at people? What does Paul tell us when we were about to come to, to Passover? He said, let a man or a woman examine themselves, right? To, to take inventory and so eat, participate. Take hold of that Passover. Same is true in the Jubilee on atonement. Not oppressing ourselves. Are there parts of us that we are leaving in a prison of anger, of betrayal, loss, of regret? Have we tried to treat ourselves? Have we tried to break ourselves out of prison with false comfort? misdirected or misunderstood attempts to work our way out of this deadest prison that we're in? Are we prepared to accept the jubilee that Jesus Christ has brought for us? Are we trying to limit the liberty for which Christ has made us free? I don't know, brethren. 
I don't know if you're willing to look into your heart that way. Sometimes we struggle with things and we, we don't even think about it. And then perhaps a loved one or somebody will bring those things to us and, and then we can see the reality of what's going on in their life. Are we prepared to do that? And to accept the acceptable year, the year of Jubilee that Jesus is bringing us. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul tells us, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Go back to your family. Go back to our family. And who is our family? It is the creator of heaven and earth. He is our father. And through Christ Jesus, through his jubilee, we go back to him, don't we? And we go back to our inheritance. And Paul says, don't go messing around with bondage again. With the things that led us to bondage. What are those things? What are those things for you? What are those things for me? Further on in Galatians, in chapter 5, Paul gives us a big list of things that can be bondage. Bring us back into bondage. Take us back to the debtor's prison. He says in verse 16, I say then, walk in the spirit, that you not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, for the lust of the flesh, for the Flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, Outbirths of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a list, isn't it? And I'm pretty sure that there's at least one thing on that list that we all fall victim to. Different thing for each one of us. Maybe there's two or three. And maybe there's two or three that are interrelated. And if we can get rid of one, we might be able to get rid of the other. Or at least hand them over in that jubilee process and leave them behind the debtors we know that we're not going to be perfect <laughs> we know that but these are very deliberate lifestyle choices that Paul is talking about do we sometimes get jealous yeah every time I see a nice new Tesla driving by but I decide to myself no I'm not I don't need to continue down there and, and try and bring that back and replace it with something else. Prayer at the moment might help. 
kind of hard to pray when you're in rage, isn't it? When he says outbursts of wrath. But it's kind of hard to have an outburst of wrath when we're praying. We need to be deliberate about these things. We don't accidentally engage in sorcery. Right? Oh, I fell over, and I did a, I did a, a magic spell on that frog. Or is it the other way around? The prince becomes the frog. There's some, these are deliberate ambitions. We don't accidentally be ambitious today. Right? These are setting things and goals ahead of the plan and the Christian walk and the life that Christ has called us to follow. These are not the momentary sins. Although they can lead somewhere. But these are deliberate sins. So, are we holding on to some of those things? We're keeping them in the debtor's prison. We're not letting ourselves be released from these bonds. Think about it. If you're an Israelite man or woman living under the Jubilee law, you heard that shofar, would you leave? <laughs> when somebody says, all right, it, the shofar of the Jubilee has been blown, what are you doing here? Yes, you would leave. And return to your family. And back to your land. To your inheritance. Leave all those other things behind in the prison. Not bring them with us. Then we will have the fruits, won't we, of what Paul is talking about that comes from the jubilee in Christ Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love. Is joy. I think we'd have joy if we fully participated in the jubilee. Right? We would have joy. We would have peace. We'd have long-suffering and kindness, goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in one of the biggest lessons I think we can learn is in as much as those, the lusts of the flesh and the fruits of the flesh are deliberate ways of life, so is the fruit of the Spirit. Exercising the Spirit, allowing the Spirit of God to change us, direct us, so that we are long-suffering. We have a choice, don't we? We can get angry with somebody or we can just be patient and kind and deliberate in our patience and kindness. Well, some people need us to be very deliberate about being kind to them, right? There's just personalities and clashes that we have all the time. It is something that we have to be deliberate at. We're not trying to gain salvation by keeping God's holy days and that's good. But we also need to not fall into the trap of thinking that we can get out of prison on our own. We can't get out of prison on our own. 
in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul continues in his instructions on how to live free. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. It's so easy to forget. There is a prince of the power of the air. And he directs this world. And he wants you and I to follow him. And he is deliberate about setting things in motion that will cause us to stumble, that will mislead us, that will entice us back to the ways of the flesh. He's a real enemy. He is a real enemy. Who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we have once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love, for which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I just love this verse. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, we think that we see his graciousness and his kindness and his love to us now. Paul is saying, it's going to take ages of time for him to show us the true depth of his grace and mercy toward us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand we should walk in them. I haven't even imagined in our wildest imagination what that inheritance is going to be like. What that day of jubilee is going to be like. And then he says this. He says, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, you are called uncircumcision. By what is called circumcision? Made in the flesh by hand that at that, at that time you were not without Christ. Uh, rather, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I think what Paul's referring to here is this fascinating little part that that is in Leviticus chapter 25, and it talks about the difference between people that have gone into, slave, uh, gone into servitude in Israel for, to pay debts and those that are not Israelites who are absolute slaves. In Leviticus 25 and 44, as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy 
male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you. To inherit them as a possession, they shall be your permanent slaves. Who would want that? And yet Paul said, without Christ, that's who we would be. Permanent slaves, cut off from any jubilee that Israel had. Imagine being a slave in the land of Israel, and all these other guys go free in the jubilee, but you do not, because you are not of Israel. Paul is contrasting this here, that we through Christ Jesus, are not slaves. We are children of God. We are heirs of his kingdom. And we will go free in his jubilee. So, as we look forward to the Day of Atonement, as we should look forward to the Day of Atonement, we don't have to clean up the kitchen, and we don't have to make the coffee. But we can celebrate the day, the year of Jubilee, the life of Jubilee that Christ Jesus has brought to us. That we are not cut off from his people. That we are able to participate in that Jubilee. Not earning salvation for ourselves. All freely given 